Hi, welcome back to Black Feminist Rants. Welcome to the season three premiere of BFR. I'm so excited to be back, but first, before we get into all of that, happy Black History Month. It is February. Um, we are just celebrating everything that is black. I went to um, the new black independent bookstore in Louisiana. It's called Baldwin & Co. Company. That was so amazing. I purchased from some black friends, you know, supporting small businesses. So definitely celebrate Black History Month and support, you know, black creators and small businesses and just the black people in your life um, during Black History Month and beyond. So yeah, definitely do that. So for this episode of Black Feminist Friends, episode 20, I'm going to be talking about activist influencer culture. Um, but before we get into that, I'm going to just retouch on what reproductive justice is again, because Black Feminist Rants is a podcast that centers conversations in reproductive justice and activism through the experiences of a young black feminist, aka me, Lakia Williams. So I'm just going to touch on that a little bit and then I'm going to get into the topic of today's podcast. And at the end, I'm going to talk a little bit about what to expect from the rest of season three. Oh, and also before I get into that, I also want to say thank you so much to all of the new followers. I know our Spotify account has boomed. We've gotten like thousand yeah about a thousand new uh spotify followers and i'm pretty sure there's some new ones on apple podcast as well so thank you so much and if you are new and you're following the spotify or the apple podcast definitely follow bfr on instagram that's where i am most activist that's where i'm most activist that's where i'm most active um it's called black feminist rants just like the title of the podcast um and i post updates on podcast episodes, um, sneak peeks of episodes, who the guest speakers are going to be, as well as um, information pertaining to topics that are covered in the podcast. So definitely check out the Instagram. So like I said earlier, to start off this episode, I want to touch bases on what reproductive justice is again, um, and then my own experiences with reproductive justice recently and reproductive health issues. Um, because as, well, you might not know actually, but Sister Song has a saying that we all have a story to tell and whenever I have a guest speaker on here, I always ask them, you know, what is your RJ story? And I don't think I've actually ever shared my RJ story. Um, and I, it's that's something that I really identify with, with Monica Simpson, who's the executive director of Sister Song. She said when she was younger, she um, her reproductive justice story was always tied to other people's stories. So supporting friends getting abortions or doing this or doing that. And she didn't really have a story of her own. Um, and then as she got older, she began to reflect more on her childhood and she realized she did have a story. She just didn't identify it yet. Um, that's episode like four, if you want to go listen to what she said. But um, that's something that I identify with as a young person as well. Um, you know, I know I have different aspects of my life that relate to reproductive justice, but I don't feel like or I didn't feel like I had an actual story. Um, but honestly, just being like, I mean, honestly, everyone has an RJ story. It's just sometimes you you might try to like relate your story to other people's stories and then be like, oh, well, my story's not as important. It really is. And you're probably just gonna take you a while to come to it. And that's kind of what I got from Monica and what she shared. And I definitely see that in my life. But then I've just recently had some like health issues and stuff, which has, it's so wild just thinking about you know, I have a podcast on this. I work for nonprofits that um, deal with this. Um, and so, you know, I'm really knowledgeable and I know about these things and I know how the systems work to an extent. And then to actually be put in that position and to have to actually go through that individually just as a person was definitely eye-opening. And it was like everything that was happening, I was relating it to RJ. I was like, OMG, 
this is the issue like this everything just related so it was good that i had that knowledge and that i knew i wasn't alone and that you know so many people probably had it worse just thinking about privilege and the different things that go into accessing healthcare and just having you know health issues and being a black woman seeking healthcare. but also it was just like dang it was depressing as well because you just know how insidious these systems are and how hard it is to get care which you know was my experience so I'm going to talk a little bit about that and just like relating it to RJ's stories and like feeling seen and included in movements and then I will jump into the activist influencer culture uh, part of the podcast so just really quickly I'm going to restate what reproductive justice is um, and specifically because I've been seeing people tag me in posts and like people like saying things and a lot of times people have the facts around reproductive justice a little bit um not even wrong just like a little bit backwards sometimes so reproductive justice is a framework and movement based on the human rights framework and it states that people have the right to bodily autonomy to have children to not have children and to parent their children in safe and sustainable communities i usually say you know safe and healthy communities like it really like doesn't matter exactly how you describe it but just like those kind of four tenets of reproductive justice And so that framework was, well, first, reproductive justice was coined by 12 black women in 1994, and they kind of built out this framework. And so a lot of times people will say, oh, RJ was created by, you know, 16 women of color who came together, blase, blase. That's actually incorrect. So they are confusing the founding or the creation of Sister Song, which is the National Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, with the creation of reproductive justice. They're not the same. So reproductive justice was created by black women. Reproductive justice is created by black women. It's a black creation. It's a black feminist creation. And Loretta Ross says this repeatedly. And I have episode with her, episode two. Check it out. Um, But I think it's really important to state that and for us to understand that, Um, especially when we think about the type of labor that black women have put into this country and the type of labor we have put in to see a liberation for all people like we're always there it's really important to honor that and to understand that or to name that when we create something you know we created it when those 12 black founding mothers created something they are the creators not 16 women of color it was 12 black women so that's just kind of my nitpicky thing on the subject you know people can disagree or whatever i really don't care because i i feel how i feel about it but I'm not saying that those people who got it misconstrued are wrong. Um, They just kind of got the facts misunderstood. And I also want to say when I came to Sister Song, because I was an intern um, summer 2020, um, I got this figured out. I I learned the details. Um, um, Christian Adams at Sister Song is the lead trainer and she trained me and my other intern other person that I interned with um, about the history of Sister Song and I was able to learn this and really like tease out some of the details that I was fuzzy on so I understand that it can be a little confusing because I was there I also had it wrong which you know I've had the privilege of learning it and so I definitely want to make sure that other people are getting it correctly so I definitely don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to be like how don't you even know this you're supposed to know this like I totally get it I didn't know this either but I think it's important that we do know it and that we state it correctly so that's why I'm saying it so on the other end Sister Song was created in 1997 by a group of 16 women of color organizations 16 women of color who created Sister Song the National Women of Color for Reproductive Justice Collective that's it so 12 black women created RJ they coined the term and then 16 women of color organization like leaders created Sister Song that's that's the T. That's it. So I just wanted to restate that because, like I said, I think it's important that we do give people credit. And especially when we're thinking about the type of labor and intellectual labor as well and theorizing that black women do, that we honor that and we name that. 
Okay, so that's that's kind of my little black feminist rant on that topic. Um, and so I wanted to get into a little bit about why season three has taken me longer to get out and just like what's been going on. So basically, I've been having some reproductive health issues. I had abnormal uterine bleeding. I was essentially on my quote unquote period for two full months from December 9th to February 9th. And just I went to a clinic and they said they couldn't see me. Then I went to my primary care provider, my physician. And she was AWOL, absent without leave, she didn't show up, so another physician had to see me. And then oh, I needed a refill on my medication, he PCS, which is just military talk for he left and was no longer in the city and no longer worked there, so he could not fill anything. And then my AWOL doctor refused to fill it, and then I went to another facility, and it was just like a lot of runaround. I was, I started going to see the doctors at like five weeks of bleeding, and then I didn't stop bleeding until three more weeks after that so it was just a lot of issues with like insurance and like getting to a doctor's office and getting doctors to see me and and you know like having communication on my test results I wasn't able to I was calling you know four days in a row and nobody could explain to me what the abnormalities on my test were so it was just like a lot of stress around all of that um and I still to this day I don't have like I'm I haven't fully ruled out fibroids and so like trying to get in to see an ultrasound for that and like who am I going to see am I going to go back to my primary provider who has been really pissing me off <laughs> like I don't want to see her anymore like go away so that's basically just been it um but one of the main things is is if you know me from you know freshman year of college I am so anti-birth control personally like you know I, people can do what they want to do but I don't want to take birth control because when I learned about reproductive justice and I learned about Loretta Ross and how she was involuntarily sterilized via the Dalcon Shield, which was an IUD, which manufacturers knowingly knew was defective and still like sent it out to like black and brown women. And like so many people were sterilized. It was like hundreds of thousands, I think. There was like a lawsuit and everything. Um, so like learning about that and then, you know, Deepo Vera and how that has gone through the black and brown communities and just, you know, traumatized people and just so many and then just like the racist history of birth control as well so there's just so many different aspects that you know when I was 18 years old I was like oh no I'm not gonna do this and for context I was learning this at 18 years old and I also had my sexual debut at 18 years old so I was like no I'm not really gonna implicate myself into all this trauma and all like these terrible things that I'm seeing so I've just been very anti birth control for myself personally for personal reasons um and i'm going up i think in june will be my four-year anniversary of my sexual debut <laughs> so like you know give me a gift or something um so it's been like four years where i and i haven't used birth control because you know i use fertility awareness method and like all these other non-hormonal non-invasive forms of birth control it's actually one of the things i wanted to do like as a scientist you know i'm majoring in neuroscience i wanted to like research non-hormonal non-invasive forms of birth control because of what i've learned through you know stories like loretta ross's that has always been an interest of mine. Um, that's how I got a grant. That's how I got a grant to go to the go to Taiwan on an NIH fellowship to do research there because that's what I wrote about in my application about what I want to do as like a black scientist um, in the future. So yeah, it's always been my thing. Um, but with this little issue, I've been having this health issue. The doctor was like, "Okay, we can put you on birth control and get this fixed quick." And I was like, "Okay, put it in me," because <laughs> I was so tired of all the issues. So now I've been on birth control for about a month um it's not ideal because you know I didn't want to do it but I also like and I, I kind of feel like the doctors were just kind of like okay it's a quick fix instead of like actually finding out what was wrong with me 
Um, which I mean, I, I appreciate to an extent because like I'm tired of suffering, like just get it over with like all this, like it's been so like emotionally draining and then like, you know, having questions about my fertility and like I was in debilitating pain so often. Um, like that's why it wasn't even a period. Like I bled so heavily. I bled so often. Um, I couldn't even predict the amount of like menstrual supplies I would need when I've been I've been doing this thing for years I know how to manage my period I know how to manage my cramps but this was a whole new experience and I I, I just I basically had to like relearn my body for that whole period which was really stressful because it's like okay I'm 22 I live on my own I pay my bills I'm a freaking adult how do I not know how to manage you know this innate part of like my body so like just like a lot of thoughts like that um were happening so I was just very happy to get something to relieve me of those symptoms. So now it's just kind of like managing symptoms and not having, you know, a diagnosis and know what's going on. And so, but I honestly don't want to go back to the hospital. I don't want to go back and get more tests and have to have this whole experience again. Like a part of me would just rather manage these symptoms, keep filling my prescriptions and not have to go to another office and like go through the whole process again. But yeah, so this whole experience has like, it's so infused with reproductive justice and it was just so interesting how, you know, I have a podcast on RJ and I work in non-profits in RJ and all this other stuff and I do projects outside of work in RJ. Um, and like, this is an actual experience in my like adult life where like it's actually manifesting and I'm actually seeing it play out and it was just so kind of trippy. But yeah, that's why season three took so long because I cannot get up and record when I'm crying every day about cramps and stressing about can I have kids and like going to I was going to so many surprise doctor appointments like I had to cancel so many meetings because the doctor called me and said hey can you come in or like hey your prescription's ready and I would just jump up and go so it's been um you know the top of 2021 has been very interesting so that's why this season uh took a little bit longer but that's been like my just like recent experience but before I get into the topic of this episode, I do want to add one more thing that I wanted to mention about reproductive justice. Um, is reproductive justice in terms of abortion. And I feel like a lot of times when we think of RJ, we think of it in terms of abortion. And abortion is extremely important, um, but it is only one part of RJ. Um, and RJ is multifaceted. Um, and I think that hyper-focusing on abortion when we hyper-focus on abortion, we are leaving out so many people. We're leaving out trans women. We're leaving out cis women who are infertile. We're leaving out people who either willingly or unwillingly have been sterilized. Um, so there's so much beyond, there's so much to reproduction beyond the capacity to become pregnant and the need to terminate a pregnancy. So I think it's super important and, you know, I've definitely done abortion advocacy and will continue to do it and support it, but we are doing a disservice to people and to the RJ framework if we only center abortion. And I also want to say like, I, I do care about abortion. I have two episodes planned for season three, one with Shelter Abortion and one with Renee Bracey Sherman, who is the Beyonce of abortion storytelling. So I definitely care about abortion. And then season two uh, finale was about abortion as well. So so I don't want anyone to think that I don't think abortion is, is as important as the other aspects of RJ. But because of racism and classism, abortion oftentimes takes the center stage because abortion is the RJ aspect that is most likely to impact white middle class and wealthy people and women. Um, and that's very unfortunate. So we're only caring about abortion because that's most likely to affect those with the most amount of class and privilege and the ones who have the most ability to speak out about these issues. 
Um, and so that's why uh, when we think about reproductive justice, we, we can't forget fertility care and we can't forget just reproductive health issues and access and child care. Um, and I have an episode with Dr. Joya Career Perry, who is a gynecologist, a black gynecologist, and she talks about her RJ story and how fertility issues played into it and how fertility treatment is so inaccessible for so many people. And it's seen as a privilege kind of, it's seen as something that it's only you it's so expensive because it's only for the wealthy and that's perfectly fine for it to only be for rich people because you know only rich people deserve to have kids like that's that's another thing that we see with adoption adoption is so expensive it kind of it kind of tells us that only rich people to deserve to be able to have kids when we see you know adoption um prices being so high and then fertility care being so high and then child care being so high there's so many things about having kids um and maintaining kids that is so expensive and it kind of implicitly tells us um, who deserves to have kids and who doesn't deserve to have kids. And there are so many issues besides fertility. There's fibroids and PCOS and endometriosis and abnormal uterine bleeding. There are so many things that impact our reproduction and our reproductive lives that aren't associated with having kids or aren't focused solely on terminating pregnancies. So I think it's important to also bring that into the space when we're talking about reproductive justice. And I think that's something that... Um, um, mainstream society has done a very a very poor job at. So now that I've had my little rants, I really wanna talk about activist influencing or what activist influencers are um, and how I think that activist influencing is super detrimental to organizing goals and to fights for liberation. Um, and I think we all know in the past couple of years that influencer and social media management slash content creation um, has boomed. Like the market has been booming just for years. Um, social media influencers are generally people who have built an online persona and reputation in a specific area and usually partner with companies and organizations to create ads that their audience will likely be interested in. And a lot of influencers actually sell followers or consumers a lifestyle. So a lot of people will follow influencers because of the things that they do or the lifestyle that they are living. It's usually for some type of visual aspect of their life that we admire or aspire to. I personally follow a lot of plus size influencers. One, because I just love seeing fat black women get on the internet and be paid to be beautiful and sexy and all the things that we don't associate with fat black women. But I also follow them because they usually have really great tips on how to style things or like these hacks for fat people and things like that that's really helpful and beneficial to me that I can incorporate into my life. Um, and so I personally think this concept of influencer culture is great because the influencer market is majority made up of women and so there is this new way for women to make income outside of corporate America which we know is very sexist and misogynistic and racist and all the other things so it's great for people to create their own community online and get paid to do that um, and not only women do influencing right there's definitely other types of people who are also doing it but that's kind of why I am very much a proponent of influencer culture. I love it. It's very entertaining to me. Um, and we see influencer culture just across so many like niches or subsections or genres. I have seen pre-med influencers who are showing you the best ways to study for the MCAT and how they get their community service and their trajectory into med school and residency and you know being a physician. I've seen that all the way to you know sex toy influencers and body positivity influencers 
like there's so you can definitely like if you're on social media you are being influenced in some type of way um you might not you might be like oh i don't follow the instagram models and the instagram girls and i'm like okay well jeff who's teaching you financial freedom is also an influencer and he might have all his clothes on but he's influencing you just the same way that instagram model is influencing her audience so i think there's no way to get around it and i personally think it's really great and i don't think it's reductive to feminism or it's regressing us in any type of way i think there's some people on there who are like instagram influencers who are women who don't have the same like con like ideas as i do they don't believe in feminism the same way that i do but i don't think that they're regressing us in any way just because they're living their way how they want to with their audience you know however one thing i don't agree with is activism influencer or activist influencers so we are seeing influencer culture bleed into activist spaces which i don't agree with um so just for a little context, with the riots and protests that happened this summer, um, the summer of 2020, after the highly publicized murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many other people, a lot of people wanted to become activists and they saw how terribly, they saw just how terrible the country was for some people for the first time, whether it was the murdering of black people or it was how poorly the government was handling coronavirus or if it was how corporations were making billions while people were getting laid off just by the tens of thousands whatever it was a lot of people were enraged and were just driven to some form of activism or organizing um to the point where it was kind of a faux pas if you didn't have a hashtag or some signifier of activism in your bio like everyone had blm or free palestine or ally this or ally that like there was everyone had it or you had the black square on your page period like you had something like that. Um, if not, it was kind of like, mm, what's up, sis? Like, what's going on? So that was definitely kind of a culture shift, I would say, where it became this, like, fight for liberation became more so mainstreamed and popularized in ways that we didn't see in the few years prior to that. So if you've been with BFR, you know I have feelings about um, how people reacted to the murdering of Black people in the summer and how that was the catalyst for the creation of BFR. But just generally, I do see it as a good thing. If everybody can see the blatant racism in, the, in America for the first time, I mean, it's problematic if it's your first time, but you know, so be it. That will be good because then, you know, you're, you probably will have kids or have, you know, young people in your lives and you can teach them um, that it's bad and that you shouldn't behave this way and that this is our racist history and like let's make sure that we don't have the same racist future so i think that can be beneficial and if people can notice these things maybe they'll make slight changes in their lives and maybe they will you know not tone police a black person when they have critiques so they won't you know undermine black people when they say these things or they won't do these small things these things that seem small but they really add up and do do determine the material conditions of people's lives so i do see that as a generally good thing however the issue is when people use activism which is as a way to generate some type of social currency or clout and for those who don't know clout is essentially popularity so people are with popularity you know you can gain a lot of followers and when you have a lot of followers and a lot of engagement you can create income for yourself online which is what influencers do you can have ads you can have brand deals you can get speaking engagements and speak on panels and keynotes and things like that that is something that i take problem with because a lot of times this is this is a pet peeve for me um we will see people go viral on twitter and you know different social media platforms for saying like the most, in my opinion, you know, the most mundane, commonsensical, like social justice-esque statement. Things that 
black and queer people have been saying like been like just repeating and repeating and repeating and wanting people to understand but then you know a white person or a straight person or whatever will um, regurgitate it and then everyone will be in the comments oh my god they're so woke like yes queen like oh my gosh or whatever and they get all these followers and they get all this attention and if they you know build on that correctly they can really create um a career for themselves on social media they can speak about these they can be invited to these panels they can these brand deals they can start modeling or whatever um and they are literally building wealth off of struggles for liberation and off of the knowledge that they've gotten from marginalized communities and that is unethical because now you're just using these fights for liberation to live a lavish lifestyle or just even live a comfortable lifestyle that's that's not okay because if you were really committed to these movements you would you, you wouldn't do that. You If you were a white person and people were asking you to come speak on these issues, you would say, hey, like thank you so much for reaching out. I'm going to direct you to my black friend who actually learned a lot of this from. Or I'm going to point you to these people who have more lived experiences or know more about this topic. Um, they would be great speakers. That is what a real ally looks like or what a real accomplice looks like. But that's not really what we're seeing too often. Um, not to say that it doesn't happen, but... And so these people who blow up like this oftentimes become these activist influencers and i do want to just interject and say that there are a lot of people who organize in community and then maybe a news article goes viral or somehow they get known for their work and they get a large social media following i'm not saying those are influencers those are just people who do the work who happen to have a large following um that's completely different than someone who hasn't ever really done the work or has done like one or two things and then is like this famous person on Instagram and getting all these brand deals um, without continuing to actually do the work in community. And a lot of times, if you listen to these discussions, they'll be talking about like why it's so important to support, you know, POC activists and why it's important to uplift youth voices and movement work and stuff. But it's like, okay, yes, that's very important and I agree and I've said those things myself as well. But what are you doing in community? What you're having all these calls to action and telling people to like, Look at what I did and you can do it too, but what are you doing? What are you continuing to do? How are you continuing to support and bolster these movements? Um, are you helping organizations in the background and, you know, organizing protests and making graphics and sending out listers and getting people engaged? Are you on the ground at the front of the protest? Are you marching alongside people? Are you donating money and putting together care packages? Like, how are you actually supporting other than just going in these media appearances and talking what are you doing outside of that basically is my question and I've really been thinking about this a lot because um like recently I've had like a couple of media appearances about work that I've done um and I've been invited to speak at you know conferences and panels and things like that um it's been super exciting and very affirming I would say it made me feel very good but I have also seen while doing this that's where I learned about this like subculture of like influencer like capital, like like this activist influencer capitalist like thing where like people are just getting rich or just making money off of the idea or like how I said earlier influencers sell you a lifestyle um they're selling the lifestyle of activism without being activists without actually being on the ground being activists and that's not okay that's very that's insidious to me you cannot sell someone a lifestyle of activism without being an activist yourself and one of the biggest most well-known people that comes to mind who shout out to my friend Kyla Moore when I was thinking about this episode she uh, said this but she mentioned Sh King Sean King King Sean what is that man's name Sean King 
Tune to Sean King. That is that is a perfect example. Sean King has been called out on numerous occasions for being a scammer, being a fraud, um, just using you know social cloud and social media to launch all these projects that he says he's going to do to support the black community and you know we're going to have the revolution and then when it's time to give that money to the places he's supposed to give that money to we can't find him we can't find the checks where is sean king and people continue and it's really the okay this is like a whole nother little subsection but you know when celebrities support sean king's efforts or you know they give money to black lives matter and i'm going to talk about blm in a second um because this is someone they can easily identify as like an activist in this space which let's let's problematize why they're so easily accessible and just so prevalent but they can they they they've seen them and they're very popular on social media they're like oh this person does black activism i'm going to give them my money because that's very easy that's easier to do especially if you're called out for doing something wrong oh i'm going to donate my money to this project donate to sean king but which would have been what would have been more impactful and what would have been harder would be to look in a certain city and see what organizers on the ground, see these co-ops and these mutual aids and give money directly to these individual small groups versus just seeing this black guy who claims to be an activist who's retweeted retweeted on a timeline every other day. Instead of just throwing money at him, actually research these groups on the ground and how they're making material differences in people's lives and actually benefiting them give money to them because they're impacting real people every single day where sean king is making these promises and raising all this money and then we're not seeing where it's going so that's one on the laziness of celebrities and people who get called out for being racist when they kind of want to like you know help their pr a little bit they're like oh i'm gonna donate all this money okay look into where you're donating the money and so that's one issue but but i don't really want to talk about the smaller um like activist influencers that I know of personally because I don't want this to be a call out podcast episode but I will mention Sean King because he's been called out so many times and is still for some reason getting donations and things like that but this goes into something that I always say that in order to be an activist you have to have a community to which you are accountable to um Sean King is supposed to be accountable to black people and we have continually said this man does nothing for us this man is a scam this man is a fraud and people who donate to him aren't listening to us and so that's another thing when we think of activist influencers who are they actually being held accountable to yes they have their audience but who is saying hey what you just did wasn't really ethical we need to talk about that they don't really have that because they aren't in community doing the work and that is a problem you should not be listening to someone as an organizer if they don't have people to keep them accountable because at the end of the day, we're all going to mess up. We're all going to take a misstep. And that's why we have a community to hold us accountable so it doesn't happen again, so we improve on it. If they're not being held accountable, they're gonna to continue to mess up. And if you are a real organizer or a real activist, that would be very fearful for you. You would not want to create harm in your community and make mistakes and then continue to make it. You would want people there to correct you so that you are not continually causing harm in your community because you know what it feels like to have been harmed. That's why all these people are a scam and it's very disrespectful to me that they just want to create these careers of this lifestyle or this this concept of activism and they don't really know anything about it. Or if they stood up at a rally and said three words and now they're an activist. But please don't let your activism stop there. Because while the protests and the rallies are important, also supporting community and being in community with people also matters. When there's people who you know don't have food for the night, are you providing them with food? When people have mutual aids that they need to pay these hospital bills, are you helping that? Are you organizing that? Are you sharing that? Are you are you putting together, you know, things to help community? If you're not and you're only out there when the cameras are out there, you're not an activist. So now that I've, you know, kind of said my piece on the influencer activist kind of thing, I want to talk about an article that I read recently. It was written in December. 
um, about Black Lives Matter. And it was basically touching on how BLM is supposed to be non-hierarchical um, and how every member is supposed to have an equal say in decision making, but that is not actually reflected. Um, I will link the article below because I, it was an amazing read um, and it touches on so many different aspects of nonprofit life and just things that organizers face, so I definitely recommend it to everyone to read. But what I want to touch on was how in the article it spoke on how the leaders of BLM are now making careers off of um, being activists, essentially. So they are invited as keynote speakers and panelists and they get these interviews and media engagements and things like that. And, you know, it could even be book deals, you know, foreseeably. Um, which inherently I won't say is a bad thing. I don't think it's bad for someone to be very experienced in something like activism and to share that insight in spaces of other activists. You know, if we're at a conference with a lot of activists and, you know, you are invited to share what you did and how to be successful, I don't think that's inherently bad. Or if you want to, you know, be in an article, I don't think that's bad. I will, you know, disclaimer, I've been in a few articles. I, I haven't been a keynote speaker, but I've, you know, been on panels and things like that. Um, and those things come with money. That's something I didn't know until I started doing it. They be paying money. And I just don't feel comfortable saying that people making money inherently is bad because as we know, in a capitalist society, you literally need money to live. So at the end of the day, it's livelihood, you know, and to a certain extent, when you amass so much wealth, at, you can start saying no to things. But I'm not going to inherently say that they're wrong for doing that. But they are wrong for taking that money and making these careers while the Black Lives Matter chapters who are on the ground doing the work and organizing are begging for donations and can barely stay afloat. That is wrong. If you are a leader and you're getting paid $10,000 or, you know, I'm just making up a number, but the article did say five figures. So if you're making like $10,000 to come and speak for two hours and you're able to generate millions of dollars in donations, I think the article talks about like nine million or maybe it was a little bit less than that um if you can get all that money but your organization isn't seeing it um the blm chapters is, are saying how they weren't able to access any of those all the donations that blm got over the summer it didn't go down to the local chapters which we know the local chapters are the ones in the streets fighting they're the ones doing the work so you're going on stage and speaking for a couple of hours about the importance of activism and getting paid but then your actual activists doing the work aren't seeing anything that's unethical and i don't know I don't know how one would explain themselves into thinking that that is okay. Especially if you're a quote unquote activist because care for community comes first and how are you caring for your community when they're struggling and you're thriving? No. So what we end up seeing with this pipeline of activists to influencer, or activists to quote unquote like semi-celebrity is we're seeing this replica of capitalism and classism in our efforts of liberation. And that's so disheartening and that goes back into how the system is set up for us to fail. This system is, it's that is what it does when you can enlist some of the oppressed to become the oppressor. And I'm not saying BLM leaders are oppressors, but if you can enlist the oppressed to become oppressors, you've got a fine-tuned machine. You've got something that is going to work for generations. You've got something that is going to be controlled without you being there to control it. And I personally feel like that's what we're seeing in a lot of movement building. I will reiterate, I'm not saying that BLM leaders are oppressors, but they definitely are replicating means of capitalism and classism which is very detrimental to like the liberation of all people frankly and so i know i went from like activist influencers to like actual activists who become influencers slash celebrities 
um, and how I think that's problematic. I think that really retracts from what the movement is supposed to be about. And I think a part of me like is like, is that a function? Is that what they want to do? Oh, we'll take these really well-known and really strong leaders and activists out there in the streets and we'll make them into like celebrities. Like we'll just kind of dilute them and we'll throw all this money in their face and they'll get so confused, especially if like they've, you know, they've been hit hard by capitalism and they have struggled when they see all this money. It, it's probably really hard to turn it down, you know? And it's like, that's how we can fracture groups. I don't know. I'm very much getting into conspiracy theory, but um, I know white supremacy and white supremacy culture is very insidious and I would not be surprised because um, that sounds like a perfect, we've seen, and, and in the article it touches, it touches on how BLM has lost a lot of its radicalism. They have PACs now and they have, you know, position, positioned themselves more so to align with policy changes rather than police abolition or police reform or, you know, getting rid of the police in some aspect. Um, and that definitely benefits the state. If we can get people to not focus on, you know, violence on the streets and get them to instead focus on changing these policies, which, I mean, are being enforced by racist systems and racist people, then we've got a win-win. So I think that has definitely been what's happening. And I won't even blame it all on BLM or BLM leaders or founders, but I think that is kind of what the state has done. They've seen, oh, BLM is extremely popular. They're making so much money. We can probably not get rid of them, but we can use them to work for us. And that's kind of what we're seeing because they are not um, revolutionary. They are not radical. They are very much go out and vote and people have different opinions on voting. Um, but you know, we saw, we voted for Biden or people voted for Biden and now we have kids in cages again. So yeah, that's my, and I know I talked about, like I said earlier, influencer activism or activist influencer. And then the pipeline from activist to celebrity slash influencer, um, but to me, that's all kind of wrapped up in one. They're both doing things that are not helping the movement. Um, but I do think the activist influencers, people who've never really been doing work for real, I think that's a little bit worse because it's like, you're just like a fraud. Like, what are you, well, why are you here? What are you doing? Like, it's terrible. But that's what I wanted to say on that. But definitely stay around for the rest of season three. I have Dr. Monica McLemore, who... Honestly, her bio is so long, y'all. Like, she's a nurse. She's a researcher. She researches on abortion. Very amazing. Dr. Joy Kerr Perry. She is the founder of the National Birth Equity Collective. She's an OBGYN. She has, like, done a lot of, like, maternal health in Louisiana. I think she was, like, the chair. She was something really impressive there. Renee Bracey Sherman. Beyonce of storytelling. Need I say more? I have Mariah Johnson, who is a youth fat phobia, yeah, fat phobia activist. And an RD activist as well. We talked about that phobia in our episode. I also have Shout Your Abortion, which is really well known in the you know abortion advocacy space. And then I have a lot of um, solo episodes. Well, not a lot, but I have a couple of solo episodes that I think you'll enjoy. I know someone recommended that I talk about the history of birth control and the racism in birth control or the propagation of birth control. Definitely going to talk about that. Um, and I think that was a great suggestion. So thank you. I think that was Becca. Shout out to you, Becca, for that suggestion. I hope that was you. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited for this season and thank y'all so much for like supporting me and supporting this project and I hope it's really helpful. Oh, and if you enjoy BFR at all, 
definitely consider leaving us a review on apple Podcasts or anywhere else you can leave a review i think apple Podcasts is the only way i've seen people leave reviews but um those are super helpful so much follow us on instagram at black feminist rants i will leave all our social medias linked below as well as um the article that i mentioned today